is, is it's not just about the legacy that you leave behind a leader, it's whether you strengthen those institutions so that they can stand the test to other leaders who come after. Have you Wednesday and welcome to the Brentus Foundation podcast. This is the platform where we talk about the African continent's biggest and most pressing issues and leverage best practice not just on what to do, but how to do it. I'm your host, Marina Wongokolo, and it's a pleasure to be here with you today. If you've been here before, thank you so much for choosing to spend this time with me again on this channel. And if it's your first time joining me, well, welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and do make it a point to check out other episodes as well. I'm sure you'll have a good time. Feel free to share your thoughts um, with us online. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, and on LinkedIn as the Brentus Foundation. We're here with a special guest today, and her name is Reva Levinson. Reva is the president and CEO of KRL International, a boutique consulting and lobbying firm that offers a range of custom fit services to connect Washington, D.C. and the world's emerging markets. More comprehensively, Riva is a political and business strategist, solving challenges for clients across governments and continents. Her primary area of focus is on Sub-Saharan Africa, where she works on projects ranging from political risk to election strategy. She's also the author of the award-winning memoir, Choosing the Hero, My Improbable Journey and the Rise of Africa's First Woman President, chronicling the development of her career alongside her relationship with former president of Liberia, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Let's tune in to the conversation with Riva Levinson. So Riva, thank you so much. I'm really excited for this chat. It's a real pleasure to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm doing great and it's a pleasure to be with you. Perfect. I know you're in New York at the moment. What's going over there? Uh, so actually, I'm in Washington, D.C. Oh, so, okay. Okay. Um, normally during uh, the UN General Assembly, um, I would be up in New York, yeah. but because a lot of it is virtual and all of the heads of state seem to want to come to Washington and meet the new Biden administration, I'm staying put. <laughs> You're staying where, where the conversations are happening. That's perfect. <laughs> so to get us warmed up, Reva, I thought maybe you could engage in a quick game to familiarize ourselves and also the audience with who you are. Are you ready? Stand by and just, yep, I'm ready. Go. Okay. Go. <laughs> All right. So what was the first job on your resume, Riva? The first job on my resume was working for a nonprofit, the Caribbean Council, and that did uh, development in the Caribbean Basin under the Reagan administration's Caribbean Basin Initiative. So that was my first job. I was an intern. Oh, wow. Perfect. How many languages do you speak? I speak fluently kind of only two, which is uh, um, English and Spanish, but I do speak some French and some Portuguese. Oh, exciting. That's four, Riva. We'll, we'll take some. Right. Do, you have any, <laughs> do you have any hobbies or skills that people don't know about? No, you know what? My passion is writing, uh, Marie mm. Noel. It's uh, it's something that I can I can start in the morning and I write and it can be the end of the day. I haven't gone to the bathroom, eaten, drink. I just get so into the story. So that's my passion. Yeah, no, I have read a couple of your pieces as well, so I can definitely attest to that. Um, Thank you. So what best describes your work day? I can imagine it's nothing but typical, but sure, you, you tell us more. Um, so let's see, the COVID workday, you know, we're now. 
actually going into the hybrid COVID workday. Okay. So I'll, I'll explain to you a hybrid COVID workday. So the morning would start with a Zoom calls, mm-hmm. largely calls on the continent, whether Ghana, Liberia, Cote d'Ivoire, sometimes Ethiopia. And that would get out the meetings I need to consolidate with conversations on the continent. And now, it's kind of a typical day, I will go downtown and people are beginning to meet in person, although Mm. still masked. So uh, yesterday, for example, I was um, in Congress in the Rayburn House office building in a meeting. I was uh, also meeting with the Millennium Challenge Corporation, masks following their COVID protocols. And then um, I had a lunch with colleagues from the Development Finance Corporation. And so that was a typical day. And so that's kind of a typical DC day, but I also spend um, a lot of time traveling. I think Marie Noel, you know that. So I'd say I probably, (laughs) even during COVID, um, since October of last year, I've taken nine trips to the continent. Oh, wow. Definitely power packed. You, you're just doing things. Yeah, I can't imagine having to juggle all of that with the realities of COVID as well, especially for me. Like this year is a lot better. But I think like last year, starting to travel again when we were sort of in the thick of things was just like a bit strange. But it's like, hey, we have to do what we have to do. So it's it, almost felt, it almost felt like, uh, you know, you felt good because you were like braving it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and if you masked, I even wrote a story about how I, I survived all these travels. If you masked and you followed the protocols, um, you could manage. But remember, Marino, I also um, did a lot of work in Ebola, right? Mm-hmm. So well, you have a microscopic speck and it makes your body explode and bleed out. This, yeah. you know, you kind of get a head cold. Yeah, <laughs> So, uh, you know, at least when you're when you're younger and healthy. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but, th- but yeah, it was uh, it was challenging and it still is with the Delta variant. It still right. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. So what is one skill that you underestimated but has served you really well in your work or in your career? It's a great question. So I, I didn't underestimate the importance of communication or writing. I told you, you know, being able to have ideas and put them in writing in a way that people can absorb I think that's a critical, critical skill. Yeah. I didn't underestimate that. I think what I underestimated was the importance of um, like interpersonal skills, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, of engaging people sometimes who are more senior than you. They could be a head of state, they could be a minister, they could be a member of Congress, and being able to engage them on a personal basis and get that breakthrough. Do you know that breakthrough where they're not just reading their talking points, but they're really talking to you? And um, I I, I underestimated the importance of being able to do that and get people in a position where they relax, they let their guard, and then the conversation is meaningful versus rote. So I think that's what I underestimated. Hope that is of interest. Yeah, no, certainly. How How did you get better at that though? Uh, practice. <laughs> practice. It's, um, you know, and, and also preparation, right? Going into these meetings and knowing who you're speaking to, knowing the content, what you want to say, and internalizing it. So when you get in, you can put that together and 
and give it off. You know, it's almost like in college, right? In college, when you took an exam, Mm -hmm. you know, some people go in and they just memorize everything and they spit it out, right? They spit out the answer, they spit out the paragraph. But if you internalize the information, you you create anew Mm. with the information have and you're able to build upon it and so it's like super prep Mm -hmm. super prep um yeah that's that's my thoughts (laughs) so Reba what was the last aha moment you had and why you know I think my last aha moment Marie Noel is kind of um almost I can trace back to the email that you sent me in that you know you you, you run around this world, you do a lot of things, you write, you know, I'm an author, I've done a book, I work with Madam President, but you never see yourself, you, you never, you, you, you just still see yourself as the person struggling and insecure as you are, right? And then you have, uh, you have somebody who, um, like you, who reaches out and says, wow, it's such a privilege, it's such a pleasure, and you're like, okay, <laughs> but... <laughs> Do you know, it's just kind of holding yourself in that same space and always thinking that you're um, only as successful as the last thing that you delivered when the collection of what you've done is relevant for other people. Do you know, so it's always, so that's kind of like a aha moment. It's a, it's, it's always a privilege for people to reach out to me like yourself or somebody to have read my book and to say something. So that's my last aha moment. Oh, that's exciting. I'm glad I, I was part of that moment for you. And then, I mean, the work you have done over the course of years um, on the continent and beyond is remarkable. So it's only a pleasure to point that out. Um, and the last question I had before we actually get into the proper conversation is when you hear Africa in 2050, what comes to mind? When I hear Africa in 2050, my first instinct, since I am an Afro-optimist, is, you know, transformation and the ability to take this young population and with the education and the intellect, with the the new technology, and to transform that continent so that continent raises up like Asia did, Mm -hmm. like the Asian tigers did so that is uh you know that is my hope for africa Um, but marie noel i think we're at a tipping point in terms of the opportunity for africa and the challenges so and then the you know the other thing i think of in 2050 is i'm a big reader of mo ibrahim's index right and i think about the the fact that governance has not kept up with expectations that job creation has not kept up with unemployment, that mm-hmm. the youth need to be vested in the democratic institutions and not to be disruptors, right? And so I worry. And so I, I feel like we're at this point, almost like on climate, right, where we have to really take some fundamental, um, you know, look inward and look at yeah. the leadership on the continent, you know, that's what we're gonna talk about, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and see how leadership can't rise to the occasion. That's excellent, Reba. Thank you so much for indulging in this little game. One would think that was the actual podcast. <laughs> that's not the actual podcast? <laughs> Nope, that's just our intro, but we're going to get straight into it. So I actually wanted to start um, with your book. Um, actually, no, I think I'll still go with that. So 
your book choosing he uh, choosing the hero i think it's a i mean it's an amazing book in and of itself and it not only chronicles sort of the journey of your work with president ellen johnson Sirleaf, but also your journey into your career as an individual um can you share a little bit about you know that trying to basically synthesize all of that even into a book and what are some of the lessons that it taught you writing the book so uh you know um the way I write, uh, Marie Noel, is I actually um, I actually started writing the book and had no idea where I was going <laughs> to land. Right, like I knew that all of this information was meaningful to me and it made sense, and I needed to put it together. But it wasn't until I actually started writing that I saw the connection of my life mm -hmm. with President Sirleaf. Not only what I did for her as a communication strategist, as an advocate, as a fundraiser, as an advisor, but what she did for me mm. when I was kind of lost in the wilderness of Washington without, um, without believing in myself and what I was doing and how I connected with her as something, someone that I could latch on to and help and believe in. So the book... I mean, I knew the bits and pieces, right? I knew all the historical steps of, you know, the war and Charles Taylor and and yeah. and the democracy and the elections and the campaign and the first woman elect democratically elected to lead an African nation. But what I didn't know is why I fought as hard as I did. You know, it was well beyond biz business. It was it was a it was a commitment to an individual, and so. Um, yeah, so there's like, I, I don't know if I can do it right now, but there's a part, yeah, I have it here. There's a great something that I wanted to, I, I have my um, book here because I'm actually bringing it down. I wanted to read something to you which mm -hmm. speaks to what I just said to you, right. you know, of like what, you know, what it what it meant for me. Can I do that? Yes, please, so, go ahead. So, and then you'll see what I mean. So this is, I um, I had finished my book, I submitted it to editors, and then my editor is like, you know what, you have to write an afterword. And I'm like, no, I don't want an afterword. I've like written as much as I can. I'm exhausted. It's practically killed me. And he said, no, you have to write an afterword and sum it up. And so this is the last paragraph of the afterword, right? Um, this is, a, again, we're talking about Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who was the first woman democratically elected to lead an African nation and someone I worked with since 97. So it says, working with Ellen has taught me to follow my heart and not to fear being misunderstood. I have come to see that certainty is a luxury and destiny, a journey that reveals itself with time. It's easy to stray off course, to doubt and to lose faith, to seek compromise as surrender, to feel judged, isolated and even abandoned. But there's always something to hold on to, the belief that things will get better. I've come to appreciate that we need people to guide us, those we admire, those we believe in, the heroes that we choose. That's amazing. Do you like it? That alone is amazing. I mean, certainty is a luxury and to not fear being misunderstood. I can't, that resonated so deeply with me. I'm like, I need, I need to ponder a bit more and come back to you in another conversation because that makes all the difference and not, especially in this space, right? As a political strategist, like even as a woman in this space, it, it, it's it's a lot and you have done so much, you have thrived so well and you supported, 
I mean, the first, you know, female democratically elected president. And I mean, it's 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 beyond remarkable something to think about. So kudos to you and that. But but you know, Marina, it's also like you said. I mean, I I did the journey with her, but you know, we're still friends. I mean, I mm-hmm. almost feel like I'm her single daughter. <laughs> she has four sons, but I'm still working with her on her post presidency, mm-hmm. right? The Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Presidential Center, and also mm-hmm. trying to train these next generation of um, of women leaders. And be able to give give them the type the same capacity and skill set, recognizing that on the continent, as you yeah. know, women remain political outsiders, you know, and those barriers are deep. And uh, it's you know, and I don't care what you say about equal rights and all of this and equality. I mean, you want more than tokenism in mm-hmm. leadership. You want leadership that can you know that can strengthen the institutions, you know not just a passing figure. Exactly, and speaking of leadership, right, this idea of we often hear Africa needs good leadership. I mean, President Sirleaf was one of the great leaders. I mean, she made sacrifices and made some, had to make some really smart strategic decisions that allowed her, for instance, to manage like the twin challenge of, you know, economic recovery and transition to like a democratic government. It was no easy thing, easy thing to do. What, from your perspective, from your experience, what does it mean to select a good leader? And how can we empower, you know, like our populations, for instance, to focus on delivery and accountability? Because it seems on a number of occasions in most countries, we're we're lacking on that side. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? Because it's easy to say we need good leadership, but sometimes what does it mean? How do we know that this person who said ABCD on the trail actually will deliver? And when they don't deliver, how do we actually hold them, you know, accountable to these things rather than antagonistic conversations that actually don't help anyone? It's a it's a loaded question. You know, a, a good leader, first of all, is committed to, um, you know, to making change and change for the reasons that are lifting their country up. I mean, looking at the statistics of maternal and child health, of uh of access to clean water and sanitation, of education, and being able to look at the issues that are fundamental to building a society and and have a plan that's going to address all of those, you know, whether it's infrastructure, any education, healthcare. So a good leader has to have more than, you know, more than an ambition of power. Mm -hmm. A good leader has to have an ambition of change and increasingly change, I think, needs to be measured. You just made this point, right? And change needs to be measured and change needs to be measured in the context of what makes a life better in that country, right? And I am a big, so I'm a big fan of um, of data, right? I'm a big fan of using the data to drive the improvements in the lives of people and also to allow that data to be collated in the form of polling and mm. be able for the people to communicate without social media, without the, you know, um, the contrived disinformation for that information to be out there and real and to give people, a, a leaders, a constant way of being judged and corrected. So, you know, I, I think that that's kind of answering the first issue is how do we make leaders better, we make leaders better by holding them accountable to the data 
that makes a difference in their lives. And that data is the data is out there, whether it's the Millennium Challenge Corporation and their the indicators by which they judge um, how countries are going to data collected by my, one of my favorite topics is Afrobarometer, right? Yes. Um, which is based in Ghana, of uh, which is based in Ghana and founded by uh, Dr. Jima Bodhi, who's one of my mm-hmm. mentors. But just being able to drive leadership conversation based upon things that really matter, right? That really matter mm-hmm. versus, like you said, the politics of antagonistic. Mm-hmm. So I think that's um, a, a critical base point for. Um, successful leadership going forward is to be able to have it measured in the way that it's real because numbers don't lie. Politicians politicians lie, but numbers do not lie. And then as far as um, a a leader is concerned, and and I'll I'll talk about President Sirleaf about that, a leader is, is somebody who also is prepared to surround themselves with people who have um, the capacity to 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 uh, to be successful in their you know in their and you know in their line of work whether it's you know gender whether it's infrastructure whether it's security defense to have those type of people where you can really delegate the responsibility and see that person successful and then create the values and the objectives up top it's the ability to bring in opposition. It's the ability to bring in those who are disenfranchised from the political process, often other women, often the youth, often the disabled, you know, be able to have that and not surround yourself with sycophants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it makes all the difference. And I mean, Riva, you mentioned uh, the sort of more Ibrahim index before. One of the things we've seen coming out of that is, you know, democracy appears to have stagnated or in some cases even declining in certain places. Do you have some thoughts, remarks on maybe where African countries might be missing the mark on delivering on some of these democratic principles? Um, And what should the next phase or what could the next phase of deepening democracy look like? It might be different or probably will be different for different countries. But I was wondering if you had any thoughts on what deepening democracy would look like in the next few years. Yeah, like mellow question, huh? (laughs) Easy peasy, stuff. <laughs> easy peasy, easy peasy stuff. So um, actually, I, I just uh, I, I write a column, Marie Noel, for the um, Hill, and I used to write it every month, but I'm just too crazy, so I'm now writing it every two months. And I just wrote in the column I submitted this morning. I talk about some of these, um, you know, some of these issues. I talk about the imbalance between the demand for democracy and its supply. Um, and the fact that um, a lot of the things that African leaders, African regional leaders, African continental leaders do is they let things go. You know, OK, yeah, it wasn't a fair election. You know, I know that change, that constitutional change, he shouldn't have done a third term, but we're just going to let it go. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you end up seeing coup d'etats like you do in Guinea. Or you see in Mali earlier this year when the when the when the government um, uh, essentially rigged the parliamentary election, there was also the military stepped in and carried that void. And it wasn't a void of people wanting democracy and authoritarian. It was a void of utter discontent with the mm-hmm. leader and the fact that the ballot box was taken away as a means to express 
legitimate grievances, mm-hmm. right? And the thing about Africa right now is still seven, seven in 10 people, if you look at the surveys, believe in democracy. They're yeah. just dissatisfied, right? And they're dissatisfied because it's not delivering. And so we need to look at these issues at the core. And, and at the core, and that's the challenge with leadership, is the leadership has to get there first. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to get past the the rigging. They have to get past the lack of access to funding. They have to get back institutions that can be manipulated by mm-hmm. an executive power. So I really think that the, you know, the critical part, and Madam Surley says this all the time, right, is, is it's not just about the legacy that you leave behind a leader. It's whether you strengthen those institutions so that they can stand the test to other leaders who come after, right? And so one of the things, um, you know, we have, uh, I'll go a little bit into politics, I'm a bit meandering here, is that um, uh, President Biden um, is going to have a democracy summit from 9 to 10 December in Washington. That'll be virtual. And then there'll be um, a, a in-person sometime next year, COVID protocols allow, right? And so in that summit, there's really some hard thinking going on now. And that's a bit of what my column is about because I, I just put some questions out there. I don't provide the answers is, you know, how do you, um, how do you encourage that type of consolidation of democracy? How do you encourage you know, we are not uh, we are not there to tell Africans what they do, but with our leverage, political, economic, and security, we can define that leverage and offer that support in a way that strengthens the institutions for the long term. And I think the Biden administration is thinking about that. I wouldn't be surprised if they took a um, position on the on the um, extension of term limits. I wouldn't be surprised if they really challenge the regional institutions, ECOWAS, SADC, ECA, and the continental institutions, the African unions, union to really um, to really look at their responsibilities, not yeah. just to the leaders and to those who purport to speak on behalf of the people, but actually to the people themselves. No, now I'm actually looking forward to this. This should be interesting because these these are the conversations that we need to have and we need to ask them also publicly um, to put the pressure and to see that, you know, we want to improve things. Because as you mentioned, I mean, Afrobarometer is also one of the favorites. Like people do prefer democracy. We're just dissatisfied with the results. And so we need to figure out what does it mean to deliver and how do we go about doing some of these things? So thank you very much for sharing um, your thoughts on that. And before we leave, um, I thought to ask a, a question that just came to mind um, not too long ago. Um, I believe healthcare is also an area that you're interested in or passionate yes, about. Yes. I know you were involved with Last Mile Health, um, which was instrumental during sort of the Ebola crisis a few years ago. But even more recently, you were equally instrumental, um, which is where I met you, um, doing some work around even COVID leadership, especially um, in West Africa, for instance. Can you share you. a bit about where the conversations are right now about securing and administering vaccines um, and even production. I see some countries want to enter that space. Like, where are we right now? Because I know in terms of, you know, the percentage of people that have been vaccinated at the moment, it's it's it's, it's beyond low <laughs> compared to other places. So yeah. Some of the conversations happening, where are we and where are the challenges? 
Yes, Marino, it's a, it's a great prompter for me because, yeah, it's the West Africa coronavirus, um, private sector coronavirus platform where we started uh, talking. I think right now, um, you know, I think the continent is struggling right mm-hmm. now. And it's struggling because, um, you know, it relied on a single point of access, which was COVAX, mm-hmm. to get the vaccines. And um, the, and COVAX did not have the purchasing power to make forward commitments, right? Mm-hmm. And then we had the crisis in India with the Delta virus, and the Serum Institute stopped exporting. And we had a single point of failure again, which yeah. was the AstraZeneca coming from the Serum Institute. So I, I think that, um, you know, that's something going forward that the international community is going to think about because the buying power has to be both continental, but I think it has to be nation by nation. They have, you know, the buying power needs to be there. I think the single exception was Strive Masiwa's um, initiative through the African Union and AfriExam, which yeah. was able to forward pay for the Johnson & Johnson that has been distributed. So all of that... Um, Self-criticism as well, because I was part of the conversation, is right now it's it's trying to move these vaccines to the, you know, to the continent. And mm-hmm. honestly, it's the United States on a bilateral basis that appears to be taking up a lot of the um a lot of the uh the the slack. The Biden administration committed, I think, to like a billion vaccines at the G7. Um, and now it's beginning to move them. Some of them have gone to Ghana. They've gone to South Africa. They've gone to Cote d'Ivoire. I think it, we all just have to, it's all just going to be a question of sucking it up and yeah. waiting for those vaccines to get there and masking and dealing with the strain. I think also, I know there's this big debate about should Americans and Europeans get boosters when Africans have not even had their first jab. I mean, it's a fair debate about equity, but the logistics of it are very different. The logistics Mm -hmm. of the vaccines, of where they are, how they've been distributed, the fact that those boosters will be given. I mean, that's something that has to be dealt with from a travel perspective. A boosted person also is more likely to travel for business, for tourism, et cetera. But the long-term solution, you know, is supply chain. Yeah. Long-term solution is supply chain. It's the manufacturing of the vaccine on the continent and being able to use the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement as a way of looking at who has the um, who has the capacity, the best capacity to be able to produce the vaccines, to be able to produce the syringes, to be able to look at the medications and the production of pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And it's it's gotta be like a not mine, 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 but a continental strategy that looks at points of production, points of supply and delivery. So that Africa at this point, I mean, Africa has been a beggar nation during COVID mm-hmm. for the vaccines, for the syringes, for the, um, you know, for the uh, prophylactics, for the, I don't even know about plasma, right? And so it's kind of a lesson that, um, you know, that we are an interconnected world, but there's some critical aspects that need to be built in internally. And if I were like the AFCTA person, (laughs) I would be looking at like, you know, the, I mean, obviously infrastructure is critical, but understanding how to forward position these types of supplies. The other thing, and you know what from talking to me is the other thing is that um, I really believe that the other failure of the system, at least globally, and I try to 
break it down and I failed, <laughs> was um, not being able to build private sector infrastructure and private mm. sector employers into the ability both to purchase vaccines, forward purchase, and to administer, and to do that in concert with the needs of the of the less fortunate population, those 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 that don't have the ability to pay for a vaccine, they don't have a job, and so we put together this program uh, un, under the leadership of a Ghana company, but it's also a Trans Africa company, M Pharma, to be able to access vaccines and forward purchase them to employers. And employers have the responsibility to vaccinate their own employees, but also one one for one they donate to the government stockpile. And so we put this together and we're like, this is it. This is the innovation. We know this can work. And it was like obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. And, um, you know, and whether it's just the, the way the international community decided that they would define justice and equity, which mm -hmm. ended up making the Africans the most inequitable you know, because of this disease or just because of the the fear, which I agree, of um, people loading up transactions and, and, and intermediaries and, and profiteers mm. in the transaction of the supply. So those are all, that's a big concern. But if you deal with foundational employers, you can... Um, you can push that away. And I'm going to write a whole case study on it because it was so frustrating to know you had something that could make a difference and right. just and, and and not see it executed. So I think, Marie Noel, we're going to look at that possibly for the boosters. But that's a long way off because, you know, right. in Ghana, for example, there are 798,000 people who got their first job of AstraZeneca and didn't get their second. Yep. Right. Supply chain. Let me give you another example of supply chain. We have Pfizer vaccines that are teed up to go to Ghana. Moderna already came, so Ghana mm -hmm. is a recipient of a few million vaccines. But um, they've run out of these tiny syringes because Pfizer has a, has a um, mini dose versus Moderna and others. They can't use a regular needle. And these tiny needles are not available. They, they've, they've gone you know, they've been bought up. And so if you bring those Pfizer in, you have to teach every single public health official how to be able to get a small dose into a larger syringe. And there's not that confidence you can do that. So you have 1.2 million vaccines that haven't made it yet. So that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, that's what we're we're um, talking about. But you know, a lot of blame. But hopefully, you know, we said this during Ebola. There's an infrastructure to go forward. Well, what what does that require, though, Riva? At this point, like, what are those decisions that need to be made, and by whom? Because, you know, I mean, you've done this in this space, and I'm not sure how much of that you can even speak about, because you probably would talk for days on end. But people, they can do a lot of talking, especially amongst like our leaders. But when it gets to the doing part, it's a little bit of, you know, it's a bit of a struggle. So, what do we need to do? Who needs to make some of these decisions? Who needs to pull people together? You know that that's a that's a great question. I mean, the I know that at the G7 meeting and even at the G20, there was a recognition that whatever's been contributed and invested in global public health 
it's just not enough. I mean, it mm. needs to be supersized because let's face it, the African economies do not have the capacity to even finance their own recovery, right? Mm -hmm. So there really needs to be a recognition in this post-COVID that, you know, we have this cliche, the Marshall Plan post-World War II, but let's face it, what COVID has done has put the continent into a recession, the first in a generation, right? Yeah. And so there, there needs to be the resources. And I know that at a at a leadership level, at an ECOWAS level, at an African Union, at an AFDB, those those are are, le are those are being fought for, right? So that's mm -hmm. a resource question. But it's never just been about resource for Africa, right? Mm -hmm. It's been about leadership. It's a bit. It's been about the institutions and the capacity and being able to to show, you know, to have a plan and to execute that plan across a continent with measures for anti-corruption, with measures for efficiency, with data which show how that's being implemented. And I think that's where the conversation is going. We all have to admit that the Africa CDC and the Africa Union they really stepped up. Right. Mm -hmm. They really stepped up with shared protocols. They stepped up with the ability to, you know, have um, have the continent work together. But now it can't just be the Africa CDC. I mean, the mechanisms of, of accountability, of supply chain, of how you integrate the private sector, of how you account for the resources that are going in so they're not diverted, all of that needs to be in place but it goes back marina well to your theme right which um which is leadership yeah right? you know which is which is leadership which is not only the regional infrastructure and the international infrastructure but also the infrastructure of of government right mm -hmm. um and and so i think you know i mean it couldn't be a more timely um it couldn't be a more timely subject but you know mm -hmm. we'll have to talk about how those politicians uh, get in and 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 uh, defeat, uh, you know, not only the incumbent, but are able to address the institutional barriers to participation, right? Indeed, yeah, yeah. And I just realized that time, I was like, oh my gosh, I've gone way beyond what I asked. So I'm going to wrap it up quickly. Um, maybe some other time sure. we can have some more conversation. But one, I have two questions left, um, just cutting everything down. Uh, one question I wanted to ask was, Riva, is if you could share one, two, or maybe three pointers, right, with the younger generation of African leaders, dreamers, and doers who are looking to sort of start out in the policy space, whether it be strategy, advising, um, consultancy, right? What kind of pointers or types of advice would you give to people that are looking to enter the space to actually make a difference um, in the African policy space? In the, in the Africa policy state, so not politics, but policy, right? Or both? Both. I think I want both, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the first, I, I would say, is, and we talked about this earlier, is just education, you know, mm. to, and you don't need it to be formalized. You have so much access with the internet. You can read, you can read so much. I mean, it's 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 remarkable how much information is out there. So the first thing to do is really empower, empower yourself with the information that you need to succeed. And I and that's going to be a cost issue, a cost of access to data. But it, it, it also there are ways to deal with that. Right. You know, the second thing to do is never underestimate 
the um, the importance of network, you know, of, of network at a local level, at a national level, at a regional level, and the ability of individuals who you meet. And I've seen this all the time on these on these networks. I mean, social media is just like so bad for, you know, the snark and everything else. But it's also really good for connecting people. And I can't tell you, Marie Noel, how many people have reached out to me on social media and and I can help in ways that it's an email or it's a phone call. Mm -hmm. Do you know, it's being able to have, you know, to, to build your network and then to recognize that your network, people are busy, they're crazy, they've got so much going on. So when you make a request, make a request and make that request specific and give that person the information you need, and then all they have to do is hit send. So it's it's like networking, and and honestly, I think that's like you know like that's inval invaluable. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that would be the second, and then um, the third. I'll take it from President Sirleaf because I love to quote her. Is like you know if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, it is that just to have the self-confidence and the confidence that it, it not only what you can do, but the ability to make a difference, you know, um, a difference. And that's the, you know, there's there's so much frustration right now on the continent. We're seeing it with the coups. We're seeing it with leadership. But there are also these lights of opportunity. Look what happened in Zambia, right? Look what happened, you know, in, in Zambia. Look what happened in Malawi, Malawi right? Yeah. Yeah, with the constitutional, Ghana's now had its forced transfer of power. South Africa's got some challenges, but you know the it, it's it's also to not you know to be part of the solution, to always you know to be resilient and to be part of the um you know to be part of the solution. And my final one, I will tell you, is um and I said this at the beginning is do not underestimate the power of the written word mm. and the the importance of writing beyond the characters that fit into a tweet <laughs> yeah. and the mm -hmm. importance of challenging yourself every day to take those ideas and to articulate them because however complex our world gets and you know sophisticated from an engineering and technology at the end of the day you know time will always prove that words can words can change history right yeah 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 they make all the difference that's amazing Reba. and the last question is what change are you hoping to see in the world and what role do you play in that? What change this see in the world? Um, I mean, I, I think it's uh, right now I, I would love to see a world where there's shared space for everybody that particularly in my own country that people aren't at everybody's throats, that you have the right to your opinion, that you have the right to a, a, a different idea, but it doesn't mean that you can't reach across and work with people yeah. towards a shared objective. And um, one of the things I do in my, um, you know, my columns and on my social media is I never get wrapped up into the, you know, to the anger and to the frustration. Like I always find a way to look at the opportunity, right? And um, I, I just think we need to be able to do that as individuals, as, as countries, as, um, as a nation. I mean, I'll look at 
China, right? And go to China. I have now three minutes left. I go to China and I look at what happened on COVID-19 and my own personal belief of how much responsibility China has for what's happened because of its inter, you know, its lack of interventions and its interventions that skewed the um, outcome or skewed the ability for people to prepare. But okay, I get it, right? But now, what's the conversation, you know, with China of their own accountability, of their obligation, for example, to the continent? They put so much money in in the extractives and in infrastructure to be able to boost their own economy. What's their obligation to the damage that they've done? That's a conversation. That's a fair conversation. It's not a conversation, look what you did, you're evil. It's a conversation of, hey, right? Where, you know, what about our debt? <laughs> you know, you know, what about our access to critical goods? And so I, I just think if you took away the emotion and you stripped everything of its adjectives and adverbs and found a way to, you know, to be able to to move forward, that would be that would be good. And so that's kind of what I see in the immediate space. I think you put that across everything from climate change um, you know, to, you know, to, to all of the goals that we share. Well, Riva, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. It's a pleasure having you here. Hope to catch you another time for more conversation. That brings us to the end of our conversation with Reva Levinson, founder and CEO of KRL International. Honestly, we could talk for ages. A brilliant woman by all measure. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with others and let's broaden the conversation. And of course, subscribe to our channel to be kept updated on subsequent conversations. Thank you for tuning in and until next week, stay safe.